As someone who works at a, at a church, our big day is Sunday, as you can probably imagine. So all of our preparation and everything that we do to, throughout the week is to get ready for Sunday, game day, as I call it. And as we prep, part of our preparation is getting ready for the sermon each week. So we sit down with the preaching team and we go over the verses and we talk about ideas of how the messages could look. And then later in the week, one of us who's giving the message will come up here and uh, we'll practice giving the sermons. Um, I know you think that Nathan can just crank out these gems every week without preparation, but it really does take a lot of work. Um, so this past week, I, of course, knew that I would be preaching and I was struggling for an opening example. And I needed an, an example about selfishness. Um, and I really couldn't think of a good one. So uh, Nathan offered up the suggestion, and he said, you know, they say that being married really reveals somebody's selfishness. And I was like, yeah, I guess, but I'm not really that selfish of a husband. Um, <laughs> and I've been married for just over a year, so I know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I decided to text my beautiful, loving wife, Teresa, and said, hey, I'm, I'm uh, working on the sermon. I'm trying to think of an example of me being selfish um, as a husband. Uh, knowing full well that she would have a really difficult time coming up with an example <laughs> as well. Uh, so I get a text back from her way too quickly um, that it just says, sure, how many do you need? <laughs> she said she was just joking, but I don't, who knows. <laughs> so we are, we are now in our series for Advent, as most of you know. And two weeks ago, Nathan opened up uh, talking about how we're supposed to conduct ourselves as we wait for Jesus' return. You may remember the example of him being in the, the school parking lot waiting for his dad who was late, looking for the headlights off to finally come. And then last week he talked about fighting for justice. And I love one of the phrases that he used. He talked about raising the valleys high and bringing down the mountains low. Thinking about where can we use our influence to, to help others. How we can help those suffering from injustice. And not doing it for any political reason or doing it so other people notice us, but doing it because that's what the Bible commands us to do. To help those suffering from injustice and taking those crooked paths and, and making them straight. And I got to tell you, after last uh, week listening to Nathan's sermon, I left feeling pretty good about myself. I'm a very optimistic person, so I tend to hear only the things, uh, like the good things that, from messages, and I cling to those. And I think, yeah, you know, I'm doing pretty good. But as, uh, you know, obviously working at a church, we also spend time reviewing the sermons. Um, and as we were going through the sermons, um, I started thinking, um, like my optimistic part didn't last as long because I started thinking, well, am I really going out and fighting for injustice or am I just kind of focused more on, my, on myself? Um, and I think most of us or most of the world would probably find themselves in that same spot where I found myself this week where you realize that you're focused more on the selfish parts of life instead of the selfless parts. And not so much purposely, of course. Um, it's just kind of more natural. You know, we think, um, well, I have to focus on myself to an extent because I think that I'm the solution of my problems. You know, we tend to think that if something good is going to happen in our life, it's because we're the reasons that something good is gonna, going to happen. Um, and I think one of the reasons that we are so naturally selfish is because we think that we control all of our outcomes. And we, of course, do control some of the outcomes in our lives. Like, we can choose how hard we work. We can choose um, which jobs we take. But I start to realize there's so, you know, there's so much about life that we have no control over at all. Like, we have no control over, of course, if accidents happen. We have no control over, like, who gets sick in our lives. 
Um, and realizing that we're not in control as much as we think we are really is an early step of letting go of selfishness. But it's, it's hard to do. So that's what John the Baptist is seeing in our scripture this morning. So that he's looking out and he's seeing just a crowd of these selfish people. And that's why he opens up and he says, you brood of vipers. Like, that's how he opens his sermon. Like, can you imagine if I got up here and that was the first thing I did? I just yelled at you, you brood of vipers. Like, I'd probably get your attention, certainly, but I don't think that you guys would be too open to what I had to, hear, what I had to say next. So why then, when John the Baptist yells at the crowd, they seemingly say, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm listening, and I'm open to hear uh, your correction. They even ask, so then what then should we do? And the reason that this group is asking that exact question is because they knew that the Messiah was coming. And not only that, they wanted to get ready for, for the Messiah to come. It says it right here in the scripture in Luke 3, 15. The people were in expectation. So if you will, can you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> we're going to pick it up in verse 9. And you can leave your Bibles open. We're going to walk right through the, the scriptures together this morning. It says in verse 9, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I'm a very visual person. I like to picture things. So when it says that every tree that does not bear good fruit is thrown into the fire, I start thinking uh, of myself. I start seeing myself as one of those potential trees. And I start wondering, like, am I bearing good fruit? And then I think, well, okay, well, what even counts as bearing good fruit? And then the part that really gets me, if, if that's true, and that, does that mean that God really would cast me aside if I wasn't bearing uh, good enough fruit? Because those are good questions to ask, asking yourself, like, am I bearing good fruit? What really counts as uh, good fruit? Um, and the best question, well, what does God say about that? So that's what the crowd uh, is thinking here, too. So you can see in verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Um, and it's not, that, that thinking really isn't that much different than today. Because back then, they knew that they needed a Savior, and they were waiting for the Messiah to come. Today, we know that we need a Savior, and we're waiting for our Savior to return. You know, so it's really not that much different. And I always like when the Bible is um, relatable then as it is um, now. Because sometimes, I think we can be honest with ourselves, like the Bible can seem kind of long ago and far away, can it? Like it seems it uses kind of like ancient writings and some examples. Like anytime they draw water from a well, I'm like, I, I can't relate to that. Or anytime they talk about shepherds whatsoever. I'm like, that just seems far away. Like I, nothing in my life revolves around a shepherd. So I think, how... How can this Bible example uh, really relate um, uh, to me today? Um, because, yes, the Bible was written thousands of years ago. We, we all know that. Um, but God knew that we were going to be reading it today. He knows that you were going to be reading it with all of your opinions and exactly in your culture. He knew that you were going to be reading it today, um, and he knew that we were going to be learning from it. So when John the Baptist is answering them in the scripture, um, it's as just much for them as it really is us for today, which I always really appreciate. Verse 11. And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And this is radical thinking because this was happening nowhere. When he was talking to these crowds of people, that's not what they were doing. 
you know, most likely they were taught to, to share and to help each other out. But what they did was they tended to do that with just people like them. Like Jews tended to share with Jews. Gentile tended to, to help out Gentiles. There really wasn't much of crossing cultural boundaries. Almost no crossing of racial boundaries and certainly not crossing any economical boundaries. But John, for the first time, is saying, stop living in these silos like you've been doing. He's saying that if you're a Jew and a Gentile or a, a, a Roman or a Samaritan needs your extra tunic, then it's your duty to share with them. He, wants, he says, stop thinking about what benefits only you. And for the first time, start looking outwards of how you can actually um, help others. So verse 12, he starts talking, uh, or people in the crowd start talking to him. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. So another thing that was happening was tax collectors were cheating everybody left and right. They were authorized to collect $100, but then they would forcefully take $200 and keep all of the, the extras for themselves. It's one of the reasons that tax collectors are looked so down on in the Bible. And if we heard that commandment now, we're hearing it now, and it says, stop cheating people. That seems so obvious to us, right? Like we think, okay, well, I can stop cheating people. But back then, that's what they did their whole lives. That's what they were used to. They were used to looking out for themselves and taking advantage of other people to, to help themselves. So that adjustment for them would have been very difficult. And then there's also other people in the crowd, these soldiers. In verse 15, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wagers. Soldiers back then were like the police force. They were like the military. They had a lot of power. And it says that they were extorting money from people with the threat of violence or even imprisonment. So they were using their, uh, their power and influence for their own gain. And those were the people that were supposed to be uh, in charge of protecting uh, the people and working for those people. But instead, those were the people that were, they were now um, taking advantage of all these uh, people. Um, so when John's talking in this scripture to the crowds, these are the people that he's talking to. Um, and so when they hear this, <clears throat> this is totally new for them. They're thinking, wait, help out other people instead of only thinking about my, my, myself? Treat others fairly? This, uh, that doesn't make sense to me. I'm, I'm in the position of power. Shouldn't I use this position that I probably earned to advance myself? And they think, well, besides, I'm only really taking a little bit. Um, but though John comes along and he says, no, you're asking what you need to do to bear good fruit in preparation for the Messiah? This is it. You need to be kind to others. You need to be fair and just. You need to protect those people that can't protect themselves. And John is saying all this because he, he knows that the Messiah is already here. You know, he's been prepping for Jesus' arrival for a long time. And he knows that Jesus is about to come and do the most selfless thing that the world has ever known. He knows this, and he's trying to convey it to people. Um, so now it's starting to become a little bit more clear to the people that he's talking to. Um, so much so that it's starting to make sense um, that in verse 15, uh, people are starting to wonder that maybe John himself is this coming Messiah. Uh, if you look at 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. You know, if I, if I was there, I might be doing the exact same thing if I was in that crowd. Um, this guy, John, he spoke with authority. He has crowds all around him. He probably had rugged good looks. 
I don't, that's not in the scripture, but that's how I always pictured John the Baptist. You do too, right? Like, we all kind of. But, um, but he spoke to these crowds of Pharisees with this, this new hope um, that the Messiah is coming. All the injustice that they've been uh, going through is going to come to an end in a lot of ways um, because of just one man, just one man being selfless. Verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Because John is saying that I can baptize you with water, but he, he can save you. And that's totally new thinking. And John understands that he's important to all these people, but he also understands that he is not much in comparison uh, to Jesus. Because it really doesn't get much more humbling than say, I'm not fit to untie your sandals. Like, that's really, really humbling. And when, when someone is baptized, then, like now, what it is, it's an outward showing um, of the life that you want to change. A new life. Um, the dying of the old and, and the putting on the new. It's a way for you to prove to yourself and to show others that you really want to be different in this new life. However, it's not the water that saves you. It's not the act of being dunked underwater and then brought up that all of a sudden uh, that that's what God wants um, from us. You know, it, it's like marriage. In, in marriage, you, we, we wear a ring, um, but this ring isn't what makes you married. You know, this ring isn't what may, uh, made me married. Um, it's the commitment that I made to my wife and that we made under God that now we are married. You know, it's this, the ring is just something that symbolizes it. So this is also a new concept um, about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, he's not just going to change the way that we live and act, but being baptized with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is going to change your entire life, but also your eternity. You know? See, because great teachers can influence us into action, and great sermons can inspire us, great churches can encourage us to, to be better people, but Jesus, he can baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, it says. Because wouldn't it be great if baptism, as soon as you're, you're ducked un, dunked under and brought up, that we're instantly just this perfect version of ourselves? Like, that would be, that'd be really, really nice, but that's not how it's done. The Holy Spirit works in us, but he, he often will work gradually in our lives. And, you know, it says that he can get rid of a lot of the, the, the bad things that are going on there that we're struggling with, but sometimes it won't be fun. And almost always it's not overnight. However, if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, he can take us, all of us, as flawed people and affect others for, for his kingdom. And, you know, the, the longer I've been a Christian, the more and more I've realized that nothing of value can be done outside of the Holy Spirit. Even me up here speaking today, if the Holy Spirit's not involved, if the Holy Spirit doesn't come to anoint my words, it's just me giving a speech. This, this building, um, this church, if, if the Holy Spirit doesn't anoint this church, it's really just a building. You know, that's all it is. But when God anoints something, or when God anoints someone with the Holy Spirit, that's when everything changes. The Bible is filled, you know, page after page of just these flawed people that would no way have been able to do what they did without the Holy Spirit's anointing. And what is it that the Holy Spirit does? He works in us to make us more and more like him. Uh, in verse 18, 
It says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And the good news, what is it? Is that he will make us more and more like him. Uh, so the good news that talks about is that selfless gift that Jesus is going to give. And this week is the third week of Advent, and we find ourselves not just waiting and not just uh, preparing, but in fact, we find ourselves expectant for the end of the story now, the where, where Jesus is coming back. Listen to these words from Zephaniah from the Old Testament, uh, where it talks about the, the day where Jesus is returning. I put, we're going to put it on the screen here because Zephaniah is not an easy book to find in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. You ever try and find one of those Old Testament prophets? Like Obadiah. All right. So when I think about these Old Testament prophets, um, I think like how can they, being so long ago, relate to us today, um, even right now? Because if this is all true, if a, a selfless Savior came to save a selfless, selfish world, then what shall we do? And Zephaniah says it right here. The first thing Zephaniah does and tells us to do is to praise God. Look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So why is there so much praise? Well, the next verse, verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. And that's reason enough to praise God. You know, I love that we have a cross hanging up here um, all the time. And if Zephaniah knew that, that this was true, living hundreds of years ago before Jesus died on this cross, like how much more true is it for us now knowing the, the other part of the story? It says, he has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. So then the question, what do we do now? And it's the same question that the crowds were asking right back then. Next verse, the wrapping up. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let, your hands, let not your hands grow weak. It says, fear not. To fear not. You know, we know the ending of the story. Um, and you know what Jesus wants from us? Zephaniah tells us. First thing he wants us to do is to praise him. The second thing, he wants us to realize that he's taken away judgments against us. And the third is to fear not. Uh, in the scripture today, the people were asking John, you know, what then shall we do? So sandwich, I asked that same question, what shall we do? And looking at Jesus as our example, who was so selfless that he gave himself up on the cross willingly, completely willingly, um, because I think we, we realize that it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus up on the cross. You know, it certainly weren't his sins that kept him um, up there. It was our sins that kept Jesus up on that cross. And I say this often, especially downstairs with the students, I say it a lot. It's easy to understand that Jesus died for our sins, for everybody's sins. That's kind of easy to accept. Um, but do you know that he died for your sins? Like, it's, a very, it's, it's much more humbling realizing that Jesus died for my sins. It says my sins alone were enough to keep Jesus up there. And dying for someone else, it, it doesn't get more selfless than that. So what would it look like if we lived as selfless and generous 
if we live selfless and generous lives following Jesus' example? How much could we do for others? Who could we lift out of these valleys that need our compassion? Um, what injustices could we bring low in Jesus' name? And Advent is a time of expectation of Jesus returning. And if we really believe that Jesus was coming back, would we act differently? If you really believe that, like, would we act differently? So going back to the original question, well, then what then shall we do? How should we live and act knowing that Jesus is returning? Well, it says it in Zephaniah. The first thing we do is praise him. Second thing, realize that he's taken away judgment from us. And the third thing is to fear not. And Matthew, can you put that verse, the last verse back up there? The last thing it says, after fear not, let not your hands grow weak. Let not your hands grow weak. That's speaking directly to us. So let's get to work. Amen.